Hi, this is Sean Blackshear, life insurance broker for First Family Life Allegiance. Did you know that life insurance not only will cover you if you pass away, but it's also used to build a legacy for your family. It can also help you generate income. It can protect your mortgage and it can cover you with any kind of medical affliction. Please contact me at 314-374-3412. Or please drop me a message on on Facebook and like the page at First Family Life Allegiance or go to my website, firstfamilylifeallegiance.com and schedule an appointment and I'll call you at a time that works for you. Welcome to Title VII, The Movement, hashtag the right to sue. The podcast that speaks to the specific real world subject of employment as it pertains to workplace discrimination and its defender, the controversial Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'm Paige, and my co-host is Griffin. Hello. We're excited and happy to kick off this podcast. We would like for you to be sure to subscribe and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here speaking on the real world subject of workplace discrimination as it pertains to Title VII. Title VII is the Seventh Amendment of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VII covers both state and federal laws prohibiting employment discrimination, outlining five major protected classes, race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. For those of you perhaps are not familiar with Title VII, my co-host and I will make sure that you know what Title VII is and what Title VII does. Under Title VII, an employer may not discriminate with regard to privilege of employment. The classes of individuals stated are considered protected under Title VII because of the history of unequal treatment. When Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, employment discrimination on the basis of an individual's race, religion, sex, national origin, or color became illegal. On June 15, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity is also illegal. All companies with 15 or more employees are required to adhere to the rules set forth by Title VII, which protects workers as well as job applicants. The law also established the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, better known as the EEOC. The EEOC is a bipartisan commission that is made up of five members. Those five members are appointed by the president. It continues to enforce Title VII and other laws that protect us against employee discrimination. The professed mission of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's office, the Office of General Counsel, OGC, is to conduct litigation on behalf of the commission to obtain relief for victims of employment discrimination and ensure compliance with the statutes that the EEOC is charged with enforcing. And so we come to this place in the podcast. We're talking about workplace discrimination. 
We understand that discrimination is a thorny subject because it's so subjective, based on or influenced by personal feelings, taste, or opinions, dependent on the mind or on an individual's perception for its existence. And so I'll say that again. Discrimination is a thorny subject because it's so subjective, based on or influenced by personal feelings, taste, or opinions, dependent on the mind or on an individual's perception for its existence. Discrimination complaints are even more so because the rules have embedded obstacles. The judge and jury have embedded biases inside of a system seemingly built to say allegations unfounded. In these podcasts, we will encounter case after case after case after case, allegations unfounded. I submitted documentation to obtain relief, having become a victim of workplace discrimination to the EEOC office, citing what would have been three high-profile cases to the EEOC office. Title VII, the movement, hashtag the right to sue podcast, in my pursuit and my quest is to produce a podcast leaving such an indelible mark on the heart or the mind of you, the listener. No matter what your walk of life is, you will be able to accept your individual responsibility in regards to the real world subject matter of workplace discrimination. The commission's vocation is to function as a national law firm working collaboratively to maximize its impact on employment discrimination, working to obtain justice for victims of discrimination by resolving lawsuits brought on behalf of groups of individuals or even one person. I myself haven't been such a person. The professed mission of the EEOC's Office of General Counsel, the OGC, is to conduct litigation on behalf of the commission to obtain relief for victims of employment discrimination and ensure compliance with the statutes that EEOC is charged with enforcing. The topic of the podcast, and will be the topic of the podcast, henceforth and forevermore, is workplace discrimination. Griffin? The Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is what you have been educating the listening audience on, um, is very extensive and has been added to and improved and widened to increase the protections that are available for different groups. And so we're going to continue along that um, path of informing as we start out our movement, as you said, and remind us because it is a movement that started a long time ago and has been watered down, has been attempted to be enforced, but still so many people receive no justice and resolution and elimination of the behavior of the discrimination in the workplace. So we're going to talk about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. In the 1960s, Americans who knew only the potential of equal protection of the laws expected the president, the Congress, and the courts to fulfill the promise of the 14th Amendment. In response, all three branches of the federal government, as well as the public at large, debated a fundamental constitutional question. Does the Constitution 
prohibition of denying equal protection always banned the use of racial, ethnic, or gender criteria in an attempt to bring social justice and social benefits. In 1963, President John Kennedy asked Congress for a comprehensive civil rights bill induced by massive resistance to desegregation and the murder of Megger Everts. After Kennedy's assassination that November, President Lyndon Johnson pressed hard with the support of Roy Wilkins and Clarence Mitchell to ensure the bill's passage the following year. In 1964, Congress passed Public Law 88-152, 78, Statute 241. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Provisions of this Civil Rights Act forbid discrimination on the basis of sex as well as race in hiring, promoting, and firing. The act prohibited discrimination in public accommodations and federally funded programs. It also strengthened the enforcement of voting rights and the desegregation of schools. In the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the nation's benchmark standard point of reference of civil rights legislation. It continues to resonate in America. Passage of the act ended the application of Jim Crow laws, which has been upheld by the Supreme Court in the 1896 case of Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the court held the racial segregation purported and claimed to be separate but equal was constitutional. But this was not necessarily so. The Civil Rights Act was eventually expanded by Congress to strengthen enforcement of these fundamental civil rights. The object of the Fourth Amendment was to create absolute equality of the two races before the law. Such equality extended only so far as political and civil rights, such as voting and serving on juries, not social rights. If one race be inferior to the other socially, the Constitution of the United States cannot put them upon the same plane. Both blacks and whites were given equal facilities under the law and are supposed to be equally punished for violating the law. With the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the federal government offered its immense power to the struggle to realize a more just and inclusive American society that had begun a century earlier with Reconstruction. But passage of the act was not the end of the story. The act did not fulfill all the goals of the civil rights activists. It would take further grassroots mobilization, judicial precedent, and legislative action to guarantee civil rights for African Americans. In response to a new wave of protests, the U.S. Congress soon followed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 with the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. The act focused on redressing the legacy of discrimination against African-Americans' access to the ballot. The acts were swiftly tested in court and ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court in a variety of decisions beginning in 1964. Emboldened and given the courage by these remarkable achievements, other groups marginalized by discrimination 
have organized to assert their rights. Since the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, disenfranchised Americans have used it to challenge discrimination and harassment based upon race, national origin, religion, gender, and more. 55 years after Title VII of the Civil Rights Act was passed, the EEOC received 72,675 individual complaints claiming multiple types of discrimination. There are 23,976 charges of race discrimination, 23,532 charges of sex discrimination, 2,725 reports of discrimination based on religion, 3,415 claims of color discrimination, and 7,009 based on national origin. On June the 15th, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 6-3 that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which protects against employer discrimination on the basis of sex, applies to gay and transgender people. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion of the six-member majority, said, in Title VII, Congress adopted broad language, making it illegal for an employer to rely on an employee's sex when deciding to fire that employee. We do not hesitate to recognize today a necessary consequence of that legislative choice. An employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender defies the law. The Civil Rights Act is to enforce the constitutional right to vote, to confer, and grant jurisdiction upon the district's courts of the United States, to provide an injunctive and warning of order or relief against discrimination in public accommodations, to authorize the Attorney General to institute lawsuits to protect constitutional rights in public facilities and public education, to extend commission on on civil rights, to prevent discrimination in federally assisted programs, and to establish a commission or equal employment opportunity, and for other purposes. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 contains 11 elements or titles. Some of the titles, especially those establish prohibitions on discrimination in public accommodations, Title II, federal funding, Title VI, and employment, Title VII, have generated a number of important cases in the courts. Other titles, which are largely procedural in nature, have generated few judicial interpretations in the years since, have not. Titles are selected cases in which the U.S. Supreme Court or lower court issued landmark decisions that establish precedent for interpreting provisions of the Act. As it pertains to Title VII, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, was created by Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VII, Equal Employment Opportunity, outlawed employment discrimination by businesses affecting commerce with at least 25 employees on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. 
creating or producing a work resulting in the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. These new, these new laws marked a symbolic turning point in American race relations and finally promised to expand access to the opportunity to all people. However, lawmakers never fully funded these agencies and even provided exemptions, allowing many employers to continue to discriminate with little culpability so long as they do not have many employees. As a result, millions of workers of color continue to experience racial discrimination in employment and wages, EEOC and wage discrimination. The EEOC also enforces the Equal Pay Act of 1963, EPA, which protects men and women who perform substantially equal work in the same establishment for sex-based wage discrimination. The employers are prohibited from offering a lower wage to women or men if man or woman is doing the same work at a higher wage. Labor organizations or their agents are also prohibited from influencing employers to offer different levels of pay to male and female employees. The EPA is part of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 which amends to prohibit wage discrimination based on sex. The Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009 provided more guidance for the EEOC. It codified into law the EEOC's stand for each inequitable paycheck as a separate incident of wage discrimination. In practice, the act extended the statute of limitations for filing lawsuits in cases by pay discrimination based on sex, race, national origin, sex, religion, and disability. Women played a crucial role in galvanizing the civil rights movement. While resulting legisla legislation such as the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act was a win for African Americans of both genders, they were particularly symbolic for women. Black women often marginalized from women's suffrage organizations in the 1900s and in the 1800s, founded their own groups to advocate for the rights of African-American women and men. For example, in the case of the Heart of Atlanta, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, 1908, to 1990 concurred in the judgment of the Heart of Atlanta case and added that Congress had the power to enforce Title II of the Civil Rights Act under the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. Goldberg emphasized the primary purpose of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the vindication of human dignity and not mere economics. Goldberg quoted the Senate Commerce Committee emphasizing the purpose of the act is to solve this problem. The deprivation of personal dignity and surely accompanies, that surely accompanies denials of equal access to public establishments. For example, in the case of Griggs versus Duke Power Company in 1971, ruled that the use of tests to determine employment that were not substantially 
related to job performance and that had a desperate impact on racial minorities violated Title VII in North Carolina. Things so unlike that there is no basis for comparison. Another case, Phillips versus Martin Mariotti, Phillips versus Martin Marietta, 1971, ruled that not hiring mothers of preschool-aged children while hiring fathers of preschool-aged children violated Title VII. The first sex discrimination case to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, that was in Florida. We have another landmark case that was right here in St. Louis, McDonnell Douglas Corp versus Green, 1973, found that an employee who presents initial evidence of racial discrimination requires an employer to show a legitimate lawful reason why the employee was not hired. The employee is then entitled to show that employer's conduct was a pretext for racial discrimination. That was in Missouri. Griffin? Yes. Would that green be Percy Green? Yes. Yes, it would be Percy Green. Griffin? Mm-hmm. Would that Percy Green be a friend of your late father's? Yes, I believe he would consider himself a friend. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. The good old boys club? Absolutely. <laughs> Those good old boys? Yes. So let's take a break right there. Let's, let's discuss what you know and what you saw and what you understand about the discrimination that they faced and how they responded. Because I know that there are stories and there are pictures and the legacy is what it is in regards to those trailblazers because that's what they were. And so having handed us the baton, Paige and Griffin, Heaven handed us the baton. Yes. So let's let's talk about those sit-ins and those boycotts. Yes, and there were and there were many, and I would say I've been um, blessed and fortunate to have role models as parents, and also to be able to meet um, our legends um, who have built great legacies, such as Percy Green, who I consider a friend. And I've had opportunity to um, work with and to listen to. And um, as you stated, my father, who was Lewis Ford, who um, was very active in the civil rights movement and with the freedom fighters and used to travel down south and, and go and be involved in the demonstrations, and particularly as it relates to the discrimination in employment, they were um, protesting many companies throughout um, the country and especially here in St. Louis City and in the region. My father was very involved with the Jefferson Bank protests. Um, He was arrested along with many, uh, many people here about uh, the former Congressman Bill Clay who was involved and played an intricate part, as well as Norman Say and many others. I won't start naming because it was so many others that then, after being involved early on and continuing to advocate and demonstrate 
they understood also that then they must have a place at the table. And some of them became involved in uh, politics. Some of them represented our areas in the local political positions, as well as statewide, as well as on the federal levels. Um, My father did spend the longest, was given the longest sentence to um, do jail time for laying on the ground and refusing to move um, as the police had instructed and did get beaten and have scars that existed the rest of their lifetimes and do jail time for protesting peacefully. Once again, they were not destroying property. They were not um, harming the policemen. They did not kill the policemen, but they were given um, excessive punishment um, and jail time for protesting and demonstrating against African-Americans, people of color, not being hired at the very institutions and companies that hold our money and who um, we spend money with and provide services to our community. And as I said, they went on to do the same and hold demonstrations at other companies throughout the city. And we know that we are benefiting and when we get jobs, when we get promotions, we continue yes. to hold political offices, high offices. Um, if it were not for those who were willing to sacrifice, who were willing to get out and protest and demonstrate and were willing to be relentless with their pursuit for justice, we wouldn't be able to have a seat at the table and be able to influence those areas. And while we are laying the foundation in this podcast and we are giving educational information. We will go into some other um, cases and situations that are happening here today. And these individuals who sacrificed their lives, um, such as Mr. Green, who is still with us today and is still active today. um, And we will be able to see how it is not going to um, be able to be effective these laws that we are stating to lay the groundwork if you do not eliminate and remove laws that are in place and institutions that are in place that regardless of the laws that are on the book the change that significant change that transfers the wealth to those that have been intentionally denied that access and opportunity that change cannot come and there are many people that have many opinions about what it's going to look like a movement but I can tell you from experience and living um, what feels like three four five different lives that there is a place for everyone because we may not go out and walk the streets in the protest or we may not travel to other states when issues such as discrimination are coming up or we may not hold political office doesn't mean that our belief and our pursuit is not as worthy and as value and as strong as any other individual There has to be a demonstration on every level, in every position, everywhere we have um, 
access to this American American society. We each have talents. We each have something to contribute. That is the way that God designed this government. And so we cannot talk about this and not talk about, at times you will hear us speak about God or spiritual principles, kingdom principles, because that's what this earth is based upon. And so we know that he's given us all different abilities. And so we learn to walk in our purpose and wherever we are placed, that is where we operate and infiltrate with the principles that unlock these unjust, these unfair, these unrighteous and inhumane laws and practices and policies that continue to chain us and enslave us. So we cannot operate from an educated standpoint. And that education comes many ways. But we can't operate in truth if we don't learn and speak the truth. And so that's why this movement is so critical. And it is the time and the season. We understand that we're not doing anything new. This is nothing new. But because the change has not come, the expected outcome that my father and Percy Green and many others continue to teach about starting in their homes they didn't they understood we have not arrived we have not arrived there yet and so it has been clothed and covered and um, glossed over and so uh, and we have been victims of it we know victims of it and we're not here to get to retaliate or to no. take out vengeance on no. anyone. We're here to speak the truth and to help people have a platform to speak their truth and to bring awareness that can only benefit and be of value to the employee and the employer. Unfortunately, sometimes there is a mindset that having a more inclusive workplace is going to be a hindrance or a threat, but it has been shown through research and data that it actually brings more value to your company to have different ideas, different cultures, different perceptions, have creativity that flows beyond just what you're used to hearing and those who have grown up like you, those who live like you, those who see out of your lenses, you're all speaking the same language. But you have to bring different voices in. And when those voices are mistreated and when their rights are violated, and then we have to speak about it. And we have to teach people who don't know or feel that they have an outlet or a system that works for them. We're here to try to teach them how to work through that system as well as companies to understand what is going on in your workplace and how to avoid that, how to eliminate it and how to be better prepared and open to hearing the concerns and the 
different violations that we will speak of that are going on. Now you use the word truth. You said that we must share our truths. Yes. We must teach and tell our truths yes. based on the principles and the precepts of which we've been taught. Yes. The truth will make us free. And that's our aim. That's our purpose and our intent. We're in pursuit of being made free in actuality, not just on paper, not as the illusion that so many have. We intend, we are pursuing freedom, freedom to flourish, freedom to grow, yes. Freedom to be actively and effectively members of society without any restraint. To do good. No one should be holding us back from doing good. You spoke of your growing up and what you were exposed to. And it's it's in the history books, what you were exposed to. I grew up a little bit differently. I grew up in the South under Jim Crow law. I know what it's like to see signs that say colored only. I know what it's like to have to go around back and not be able to enter in through the front door. I remember growing up and looking in the window at the Seal Test Ice Cream Company, but I couldn't go into the Seal Test Ice Cream Company. I had to go around the back. I was happy to go around the back because it meant I was going to get ice cream. (laughs) Little did I know. Little did I know, but I can say I was taught and I was trained and discipline was a very, very, very vital part of my life. Taught and trained what to do, what not to do. In essence, how to act, A-C-T. Yes, Yes, how to behave. There were swift consequences. Swift consequences. if you didn't. (laughs) A matter of life and death. I remember sitting upstairs in the balcony in the movies. We were not permitted to sit down on the main floor, but we were taught and trained to never throw anything out of the balcony down on the main floor. We understood the consequences. Yes, we understood what the consequences could be should we do something like that. And so with that understanding, I've navigated the system But I've seen so much, so much of the same, so much of the same. I've experienced so much of it in the workplace, not being allowed to work. I've literally not been allowed to work. I've been forced off of, (laughs) forced off of several jobs. (laughs) And it's common practice. Very much so. It's not unique, you know, so when people are quick to want to analyze, I wonder what she did. Exactly. But what happened? Unfortunately, we know that is common practice. Well, true that, that question has been presented several times, but there's not a piece of paperwork. There's nothing written. (laughs) There's nothing written. No, no attendance problems, no insubordination problems, no, you know, inability or 
lack of ability to be able to perform. Nothing. Ever written. There's nothing. I remember working at McDonnell Douglas and my supervisor wrote outside of the box in front of Dependable. My supervisor wrote very. <laughs> very Dependable. Working midnights. Working midnights. And had a day job. I was a single mom. And yes, it took that to maintain. To maintain a lifestyle. I was a single mom with two children. And in order to maintain a lifestyle that would be conducive to my children being safe, conducive to them being able to go up in an environment that would help them to be productive, it took that. But even then, ultimately, after X amount of years, yes, it, it took its toll and it ended the way that it did. But nevertheless, I've had to deal with face-to-face, face-to-face, the dehumanizing, the belittling, the marginalizing, everything that comes with discrimination. But when you go to work and you're at war, at war, at work. And so it became an issue for me. I had to concentrate more on how I could cover and protect myself, remain gainfully employed. (laughs) I had to concentrate on what would be my number one priority, the performance of the work or covering myself to be able to work. It was a juggling act. My purpose and intent for being there, my purpose for being there, performing and being paid, was being hindered by the oppression and the depression, by the premeditated attacks, systematically attacked. I remember so many, many times and so many incidents varying from job to job. Just the thought of the idea that when I go to work today, I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be attacked in various ways, ways that I've been attacked before, but nevertheless, having to think about who's going to do it today and when are they going to do it today. Very systematically, it was always done. And now we have this contemporary racism that we're dealing with in the workplace. There's some new methods. (laughs) There's some new tactics. And so what we want to do at this time and in, in, in this particular space, we want to expose, we want to bring to the forefront these new tactics and methods. And some are not so very new, but we have people that are experiencing the new tactics and the new methods, and they know that they're experiencing them 
But the problem with this workplace discrimination, it's hard sometimes to prove, if at all, the intent. You see, you have to be able to prove the intent. Going into the EEOC office and saying that you've been discriminated against and you've suffered these attacks and the environment is hostile, you have to be able to present the evidence. And after you've done that, I find so often in people that I talk to, because there are people that know me, they know I advocate for Title VII victims. Those have been victimized by, yes, by that law, by that office. So many times after the evidence has been presented, the determination is unfounded. Allegations unfounded. Ultimately not true, not believed, case dismissed. And so the wear and tear, the wear and tear. We see a lot of talk shows now and we're reading a lot of articles on mental health in the African-American community. And I understand real well. I understand real well. No, everybody's not crazy. But the wear and tear of trying to survive, trying to just go to work, do a job, and come home. Go to work. Do your job and come home. And so it's become very necessary for us to discuss, for us to have this conversation. It's very necessary. It's a mental health issue, to say the least. So many, many people are in a place now COVID has somewhat been a blessing. People have actually been able to take time off from work. Or should I say they have been given time off from work. Time to relax, just relax, to come out from under that pressure, to come out from under the system, the system. When you go in and you know that you're going to be here seven, eight, nine hours, you're going to get these breaks. But what you don't know is what's going to happen between nine and five? What will you be subjected to and will you be able to endure what is subject to happen? And again, it's just very necessary that we have these conversations. And so going forward, we will solicit the audience. We will solicit the audience to reach out to us, to pay close attention to what we are releasing across the airwaves because of the vitality of it. It's vital that we know and we understand that we're not alone, 
we're not alone. You're not the only one that's experiencing that oppression. You're not the only one that's having to deal with not being able to go to work and work in peace. Work in peace. Instead, we're at work at war. I see that we have another example case here out of Missouri. Hazelwood School District in the United States, 1977, ruled that statistical evidence comparing the racial composition of an employer's workforce with that of the relevant labor market could substantiate an initial case of discrimination. Another case out of Missouri. It's not foreign. It is not foreign. We are well aware of the battle that we are in. And yes, it is a battle. It is a battle. We can't call it anything else. When you're fighting for, you're fighting for, we have a cause. Title VII, the movement. This is a movement. It's a must. We cannot be stagnated. We can't stay in the same place. We can't. We see the deterioration all around us. We see housing issues. Yes, housing issues. You can't keep a roof over your head if you can't work. You don't want to work because you don't want to endure. And again, we have this civil war. Yeah, that, that's another civil war. Because within yourself, you really want to go to work. You really do. But then you know what you're going to be confronted with. And, and yes, we have educational issues. Yes, we do. Because it's also in the schools. It's in the schools. I just read a story the other day where the teacher... I really don't even want to speak on it. I, I, I really don't want to speak on it. It's just horrifying. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. And to think that this is a... This is a member of our education... Educational entities that would do this to a child. I mean, there have been countless, countless acts recorded even now, even now. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Whenever I'm having to go into, you know, having to go into that, yes, yes, it's a hard issue. No matter what. We have to acknowledge the fact that we can do something. Doing these podcasts, we will be soliciting anyone who has ever been in that situation, anyone who's ever experienced workplace discrimination, again, to reach out to us, reach out to us, join us in the movement. We don't, we don't take it lightly. We're not just 
saying something to be saying something. We're, we're not whining and complaining. What we're trying to do is make a difference. We want things to change and to change for the better. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the movement deeply affected American society. Among its most important achievements were two major civil rights laws passed by Congress. These laws ensured constitutional rights for African Americans and other minorities. Although these rights were first guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution immediately after the Civil War, they had never been fully enforced. And so it was only after years of highly publicized civil rights demonstrations, marches, and violence that American political leaders acted to enforce these rights. President John F. Kennedy proposed the initial Civil Rights Act himself. He faced great personal and political conflicts over this legislation. On the other hand, he was sympathetic to African-American citizens whose dramatic protests highlighted the gap between American ideals and American realities. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about American realities. The land of the free, home of the brave. The realities being black people deserve the full equality that the protesters were demanding. When your dad and Mr. Green, when they were refusing to leave, when they were laying down and, and, and being pulled and attacked with dogs and, and water hoses, the realities being black people deserved the full equality that the protesters were demanding. Internationally, racial discrimination in the United States, particularly high public displays of violence and terror against racial minorities, was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment to the country. President Kennedy's civil rights legislation generated considerable support among Northern liberals and moderates, as well as millions of African-American voters in states where they could vote without difficulty or intimidation. Voter suppression. <laughs> Voter suppression. On the other hand, Kennedy worried about losing the support of the white Southern Democrats still being the main political force in that region. He was especially concerned about his re-election prospects in 1964, and he was facing strong, strong opposition, strong opposition. And so he reluctantly finally proposed strong civil rights legislation to Congress, admitting privately to civil rights leaders that street protests had forced his hand. Can you imagine? And so we fast forward. Kennedy's assassinated in 1963, and it changed the political dynamics of the civil rights legislation. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson succeeded Kennedy and almost immediately intensified the campaign for a major civil rights bill. Although a Southern politician, he had developed compassion for the courageous struggles of African Americans during the civil rights movement. His personal commitment to ensuring full equality for minority citizens is said to have surpassed Kennedy's. After the fact. <laughs> After the fact. I mean, the teaching is that 
Johnson stood in a better position than his predecessor to push the civil rights legislation through Congress. An extremely accomplished politician, Johnson thoroughly understood Congress and its complex operations. For many years, he had served as the Senate Majority Leader. I remember meeting the Majority Leader, Mr. Frisk. Yeah, when I was in D.C., yeah. But yes, for many years, he had served as the Senate Majority Leader. With the responsibility to guide legislation through Congress, he had worked with colleagues of both parties and different outlooks. In essence, he was working both sides of the aisle or both sides of the room. <laughs> During his service, he mastered the art of compromise, gaining many victories for his party's legislative agenda. He also developed close relationship with senators and representatives of both political parties. He regularly used that personal knowledge combined with charm, flattery, and threats to achieve his legislative goals. And this skill proved especially useful in getting Congress to pass a major civil rights bill. President Johnson used another key strategy to pass a civil rights bill. He took advantage of the national sympathy and mourning surrounding President Kennedy's tragic death. In public speeches and private talks, he urged passage of the Civil Rights Act as a lasting legacy to what had become a martyred president, President John F. Kennedy. Building widespread public support, Johnson urged religious leaders throughout the nation, especially in the South, to use their influence on behalf of the Civil Rights Act. The actual battle in Congress took all of Johnson's political skills. Faced with strong opposition from many Republicans and most Southern Democrats, he resorted to his forceful personal powers. He told Georgia Senator Richard Russell, a major opponent of civil rights legislation, that if he got in his way, he was going to run him down. Now, this is the president of the United States talking to a United States senator. At that time. At that time. <laughs> In the Senate, President Johnson faced a filibuster, a delaying debate that could have killed the entire bill. The filibuster lasted 60 working days in the Senate. Johnson managed to get the votes to end it. He worked the telephones himself and lobbied personally, twisting the arms of legislators that were still unsure of how to vote. And so he enlisted White House aides, civil rights, and labor leaders, along with key congressional civil rights advocates. He pulled out all of the stops to gain a legislative victory. His persistence and political talents succeeded on July the 2nd, 1964, he formally signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law using 72 ceremonial pens. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking. You know what I'm thinking. 72 ceremonial pens. Take that. Dr. Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and several other national civil rights figures attended the ceremony. And so this law banned the racial discrimination in several areas, including hotels, restaurants, education, and other public accommodations. The law also guaranteed equal job opportunities, fulfilling one major objective 
of the historic 1963 March on Washington. Many larger Southern businesses had already desegregated in response to sit-ins and other civil rights protests. But the Civil Rights Act of 1964 added important legal protections to those political and social developments. Almost immediately, the new civil rights law came under legal challenge. The owner, as you mentioned earlier, the owner of the Atlanta Motel argued that Congress did not have authority under the U.S. Constitution to ban segregation in public accommodations. This was a 216-room establishment, and it served interstate clientele and had for a long time refused to rent rooms to African Americans. Thus, we have the Green Book. <laughs> for those of you who perhaps have not seen that movie, you want to see the Green Book. African Americans, it's your heritage. Please, you want to see the Green Book. But here we are. They're testing the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so the heart of Atlanta Motel, this case was a significant test of the new 1964 Civil Rights Act. It determined rather Title II of the act, which would have the power to enforce African Americans' access, the right to enforce African Americans' access to public accommodations, or if it would falter and lose the momentum under the weight, force, and the scrutiny of the administration of justice. In most parts of the South, African Americans face pervasive, unwelcome discrimination in public accommodations and were often forced to sleep in automobiles because they could not rent a hotel room. I remember when I first came to St. Louis, African Americans couldn't go into Howard Johnson's at Natural Bridge and Kings Highway. Yeah, I just dated myself. <laughs> but it is so. Now, the Heart of Atlanta Hotel was one of the hotels that refused to rent rooms to African Americans. The court held that Congress had the power to desegregate privately owned public accommodations. And so we're almost there again for the way that we're treated. And so... There was an issue with the cell phone, the young man that was in the hotel, and it was suspected that he had no business there and that he took the cell phone. And so, depending on where we are, depending on how someone perceives our presence, I don't want to talk about Mr. Marbury being out for a job depending on where we are and how our presence is perceived. The U.S. Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg said, I agree most emphatically. It sounds like hamburgers are more important than human rights. <laughs> and so in the case of the Horn of Atlanta Motel versus the United States reached the Supreme Court, the court rejected the owner's argument. Winning. <laughs> winning we're winning and so it is we've picked up the baton yes. we picked up the baton I say we picked it up and maybe it was just passed to us you know but we have it yes. and so we're, we're going to run with it we're going to run with it 
the Supreme Court rejected the owner's argument. The Supreme Court ruled that the Commerce Clause of the Constitution authorized Congress to enact this type of legislation. At the time of this ruling, civil rights advocates had achieved their most significant legal victory since 1954, Brown versus the Board of Education, a decision banning school segregation. And so here we are again. This was a consolidation of five cases into one. It was decided by the Supreme Court effectively ending racial segregation in public schools. Many schools, however, still remained segregated. Absolutely. Today, with all of it, when you talked about contemporary racism, once again, it's very um, hard to know that you have victories and wins, as you said, when laws are passed and people have dedicated their lives and lost their lives to get them passed for the purpose of having equal access and opportunities and benefits as everyone else. And then to see that these practices continue even today. So as you said, we have been passed the baton. Many of us have been encouraged have been um, trained up and have been placed in um, positions to be able to continue the work because those that have come before us understood and were able to live and see that while they had a victory in getting legislation and getting positions and jobs, um, there was still the discrimination that was practiced every day so it continued, it continued, and it began to take on a different face, a different come a different way under a different disguise, and sometimes not even disguised. And so they knew that we must continue to advocate, we must continue to be in positions to negotiate and use the skills, as you talked about with President Johnson, once again, those are skills and you have to be able to reason you have to be able to be uh, use wisdom and have an understanding of what's needed and how each person and each side has an agenda and has things that they are willing to negotiate for but you cannot do it at the detriment and the watering down of the human's rights that you were placed there to make a change and a stand and you made promises to the people. And so the reason that we are still here today discussing and talking about discrimination across all of society is because the laws alone that are currently existing is not enough. And we must stay woke because for anyone who pulls up and looks at legislation that's introduced on every level of government every year, there are attempts to remove and to take away the rights that you currently have been given when it comes to laws that were passed. And so we must continue to be aware and to advocate because there are 
agendas to keep us depressed and oppressed and to keep us living in inequality and not providing the equity that is desired and is deserved. And it's very interesting when people say, well, what is it that you want? And oftentimes that's said in negotiating or trying to reach some type of agreement as if people of color want something different or need something different. I always say, we need the same thing that you need. We want the same thing that you have. We want a nice home. We want to have an income doing whatever it is that we choose, that we have the talent and abilities, but we want education, a quality education for our children, preferably that we don't have to pay for. We want to be paid the same. We want access to quality health services, access to quality food, We want all of the things that it takes for every human to be able to live and thrive and to not have to be living in a trauma-induced environment every single day. And so there's so many facets to the discussion because that doesn't even begin to address how do you treat the trauma that has already been caused. How do you treat and repair and restore the lack that has already existed for centuries? And then you get into other discussions as far as reparations. So it's so many different areas because just to give someone a job who you denied education and then say, well, They failed. I wasn't discriminated against them. They weren't treated unfairly. We gave them the job, yes, but there were other issues that was not addressed. And so it's just so many different levels and it really is a heart issue. As you mentioned, how you get affected. It is a heart issue because if in my heart, I still see you as less than, and I still see you as a threat or as trying to receive something you don't deserve or if you're giving it that's something that I'm losing or my friends or family or people I'm more comfortable with would lose out on and then that's going to require me changing my perception changing my heart towards other people and willing to accept that all people are created the same and the putting laws on the books are what we have that we can do and can enforce, but we cannot make a person change their heart. And so that has to continually be through efforts to educate them as well as force them. And so oftentimes it it comes through enforcement of the laws, but that's why the situations aren't totally rectified and eliminated because that still doesn't change a person's heart. When we look at the agency, any agency that's supposed to defend, cover, and protect, when we're instructed that this is the way to go, and we go that way, 
and we're met with resistance. You're met with resistance. As I said, I filed what would have been three high-profile cases, okay? Everywhere I went, I met with, I was met with resistance, trying to tell what was happening to me, what happened to me, and how it happened to me. No one wanted to, I can't say believe, because they believed. They believe. But too often it was as if, well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> that's just the way it is. That's just how we do things. Um, get over it. <laughs> get over it. I personally know from my own personal experience, and again, I advocate persons who have been subjected to racial discrimination in the workplace especially persons who filed title 7 because I understand the resistance I understand the fox holes the pitfalls and the changing of the rules and the regulations yes you go one year and you do it this way and you go back the next year but we don't do it like that anymore and so the next year you go back well if you had done it this way then we might be able to help you or again allegations unfounded allegations unfounded the resistance the system it is so systematically done even now I deal with issues that were birthed out of the impact of having those experiences I went to the newspaper I went to the newspaper and um Well, being a woman of color, my story was not newsworthy. It wasn't newsworthy. But it resulted in three murders and a suicide. But when I went to the newspaper and told them the story, it wasn't newsworthy. It did not become newsworthy until shots were fired. until innocent blood was shed. But it wasn't African-American. It still would have not been newsworthy. I remember going to the newspaper with another story. And I was sending information, emailing, and they took my emails and forward them to the people that I was emailing them about. To the people that were suppressing and oppressing and depressing. Right. I remember 
snow. <laughs> Back down memory lane. You see, it's, it's always fresh. It's always fresh. All it takes is another incident. It, it, it's just another knife wound, you know, it's just another stabbing. You learn along the way how to bandage yourself up. You, you have to. You're going to have to learn how to bandage yourself up. Because no one can do it for you unless you get justice. Unless you get justice. I never got it. I never got it. And although my allegations are always unfounded, the governor closed one office. When he got the allegations, <laughs> he decided to close the office. Yeah. I mean, again, they say my allegations were unfounded, but ultimately, it wound up three murders and a suicide. These things were reported before we ever got to that place. But because I'm a woman of color, it's not newsworthy. It's just not. It's just not. Another entity was closed. Literally, they had to change the name of the company. They had to merge. And had the nerve to attack me. Why would you attack me? <laughs> because I'm defending myself against you. <laughs> we wouldn't have been in this struggle had you not been attacking me. And so as I see it, and it's, it's prevalent now. It's, I, I hear it. I get the phone calls. This is how we got here. This is how we got here. Because something has to be done about it. And so I would suggest for anyone that's in a situation as such to reach out to us, to reach out to us, Incline your ear to hear what the podcast is about. Discrimination is discrimination. When all is said and done, discrimination is discrimination. At work, at war. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission receives hundreds of thousands of calls and inquiries, but it lacks the funding and the staff necessary to fully ensure that bad actors are held accountable. I went to the EEC and every other reporting agency. I wound up going to the FBI. Yes, for the hate crimes that were committed against me in the workplace. And yes, I reached out to Dr. Field and 2020 and Dateline. Yes. Yes. And what did it get me? A restraining order. <laughs> a restraining order. <laughs> and I've never been arrested for anything. 
But I had a coworker to tell me that it was a rarity for an African-American woman not to ever have been arrested for anything, not even a parking ticket. <laughs> what shall we say to these things, Griffin? <laughs> Ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A restraining order. Asking me, I'm sorry, they didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> telling, you. telling me demanding of you demanding of me okay to stop reaching out to stop seeking help and justice you know what we say say lie think about that <laughs> think about that don't ask for help and don't ask, don't even expect justice. Racism, prejudice, discrimination, antagonism by an individual, by a community or institution against a person or persons on the basis of their membership in a particular racial or ethnic group typically one that is a minority or marginalized. And so racism is defined as the belief that different races possess distinct characteristics, abilities, or qualities, especially so as to distinguish them as inferior or superior to one another. It's characterized of an organized system and it categorizes particular groups or types of people referred to as races and it uses this ranking to preferentially allocate societal goods and resources to groups regarded as superior targets of discrimination when you're a target of discrimination you are aware of the racist behavior directed toward you millions of workers of color continue to experience racism in employment and wages. It's institutional discrimination that initiates and sustains the differences. And so discriminatory experiences as form unfair treatment is the most frequently used term in social justice. The social justice assessment they are however concerned they are however concerns about the ability to define to define racial discrimination and define it accurately. Yes, there are concerns about the ability to define racial discrimination accurately. Discrimination is prejudicial treatment relating to society justice is the concept of fairness. So let me say that again. The ability to define discrimination accurately. Discrimination is prejudicial treatment relating to society. And justice is the concept of fairness. How hard is that to understand? How hard is that to relate to? The concept of fairness. It's a lack of wisdom and knowledge. Not understanding, not knowing. That you really want to treat people the way you want to be treated. You really want to treat people the way you want people to treat your children. You really want to treat 
the way you want them to treat your children. And then we're saddened when we look at our children. We're saddened when we think about Michael Brown, when we think about Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor. George Floyd was someone's child. And I've been inside of that system. I know how that system works. Yeah, back here about a month or so ago, when the key was stuck in the radio room. Yes. The transmission key was stuck in the radio room. And so it went out on the airwaves. Another issue and another problem. Been there and done that. Been there and done that. Had my life threatened doing that. Had an officer come in, put his hand on his gun and threaten to blow my brains out. Dispatching while black. Another Selah moment. Think about that. And so that's how we got here. That's how we got here. Had I not had those experiences. Yeah. That's how we got here. And so there's a timeline and we have to be caught up on it. There is a timeline and it's time for Title VII, the movement. We would like to see so many cases come into the EEOC office that they are stacked up to the ceiling. So much so that something has to be done about it. People can no longer pacify themselves with alcohol and drugs just to be able to go to work. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. This vexation of behavior, the humiliating and abusive behavior in the workplace, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. No one should have to be concerned about whether or not they're going to be able to work in peace. This is not Afghanistan. This is not Afghanistan. We should not be at war at work. The title seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 questions and answers that everyone will need to know. That's what we'll be discussing on the podcast. What employees are covered, what an adverse impact is. We'll be talking about examples of terms and conditions of employment, promotions, wages, employment benefits. We'll be talking about Employers taking adverse action against protected individuals. What type of harassment is prohibited? Examples of protected activity. What are the potential penalties? We'll be talking about the top Title VII tips, including anti-discrimination harassment policies that are in your employee handbook or should be 
or should be. The format for Title VII, The Movement, hashtag The Right to Sue, Griffin, what's the format? Yes, we're going to have uh, case scope and discovery. So we'll have a period of time allotted for that. We will recount past, present, and potential cases. We'll have current case analysis in pursuit of the right to sue. And we will have disclaimers letting you know we are not attorneys, but we are qualified to educate you. We do know how to read and write, and we do it well. And we have lived many of the things that we will be discussing. So it's all informative, educational, and as well as we like to have fun, it will be entertaining. Um, but most of all, it will be critical to have people to participate that are willing to share their stories and are willing, those who are willing to be respectful in listening and learning as we go through this uh, journey. And we'll be encouraging you to join and participate and be part of this movement. We'll also have call-in cases once again, where we will be asking for the listening audience to call in and for those who have information that they would prepare and share with us while we are not attorneys, we will have attorneys that will participate and referrals that can be given. Our call-in cases seeking advice, what now I have the right to sue. You have the right to sue letter in your hand, what do you do with it now? <laughs> we're going to talk about that and educate you on that. Then we're going to have in with a takeaway. Our host page will give us what we learned, what caught us by surprise, and overall lessons to be learned in the real world of employment. At work, at war. Title Seven: the movement. Hashtag the right to sue. Once again, we want you to subscribe. Remember to subscribe and listen to us on the Apple Podcast, Spotify Podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We need you to tell your friends and your family about At Work, At War, Title Seven, The Movement, The Right to Sue. And so, Griffin, are we ready for the takeaways? We are ready. I'm <laughs> listening. I have my pen and pencil. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy. The takeaways, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a.k.a. EEOC, yes. enforces federal laws that prohibit discrimination. It attempts to settle with employers, but if that isn't possible, the EEOC can file a lawsuit. The scope of its work is dedicated by federal law. It enforces laws prohibiting discrimination due to race, color, age, sex, disability, gender, identity, and sexual orientation. These are the takeaways. Wisdom and knowledge.